The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and sometimes co-host with Mari. Mari's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the state of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, Investigative Reports on the NE Channel, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and many other shows. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, which they still air from time to time, called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. We have a great show tonight. We're so lucky to have a law professor coming all the way from New York. Let me tell you a little bit about him, and he's going to talk about consumer law and consumer privacy. Jeff Sovereign is a professor of law at St. John's University School of Law in Jamaica, New York. Before joining the law faculty, Professor Sovereign served as law clerk to Chief Judge Frank A. Kaufman of the United States District Court for the District Court of Maryland, and he practiced law in the litigation department of a major New York City law firm. He is currently working on the third edition of a case book uh, entitled Consumer Law, Cases, and Materials. A case book is really for law students, as you know. Mm -hmm. And... um, he is. He's written many, many articles for publications such as Advancing the Consumer Interest, Annual Review of Banking Law, and many more journals. He's had terrific law review articles, which I've read, which we'll talk about today. And um, he's written on such issues as consumer privacy, information privacy, identity theft, and much more. And in fact, the American Council on Consumer Interests awarded Professor Sovereign the Russell A. Dixon Prize in 2002. He's terrific, and he's joining us tonight. Jeff, are you there? I am. Jeff, thank you so much. I know it's uh, quite a bit later there than it is here, but we are so thrilled to have you uh, join us. I'm happy to be on, too. Okay. Um, Let me ask you a little bit, first of all. How did did you decide that uh, consumer law was going to be your area of focus. I I just wondered about that. How did you get into that? 
Well, I've been teaching in consumer law since the 80s, actually, and it seems like one of the more important areas of life. I mean, it's an area that touches every person in this country. We're all consumers. Right. And many people also work for businesses that sell to consumers or advertise to consumers. So it's a pervasive area of the law, and yet it's one that is often overlooked. Um, you don't get many lawyers who say they specialize in consumer law, though there are more than there used to be, I think. Right. And uh, it's also very interesting because it deals with the relationships between businesses and in, in people, individuals. Um, and that's an important area, too. It sure is. And I, I think especially nowadays when we're hearing so much about um, our information being readily available and bought and sold and shared, and you've written quite a bit about this, can I ask you um, about information privacy? I think many of the people listening may not understand what is information privacy. Could you share that with us? Sure. Information privacy refers to the collection of information about consumers and the sale or use of that information. Um, as distinct from other types of privacy, the, the right to privacy often comes up in uh, abortion decisions, for example, or uh, intrusions by government. But information privacy is focused much more on the collection of information by businesses, although the government also collects information um, about individuals as well, of course, law enforcement and so forth. And that, I suppose, is a subset of information privacy, but it's one I, I haven't really dealt with. Right. And, you know, basically when we talk about information privacy, it includes certain aspects of how and, and how we have control or we don't have control over our information. And so can you explain what we mean by notice, choice, access, and security? Aren't those some of the key elements that uh, the Federal Trade Commission uses when they're talking about information privacy? Um, sure. Well, first of all, let me say that the regulation of information privacy in this country is what we sometimes say is sectoral. That is to say, there are some sectors where information is highly regulated and other sectors where information is not regulated at all. Um, so, for example, uh, if one of the examples we use in our casebook is if you if a video store enters into an agreement with a bookstore and the video store says well we're going to we want to sell you information about the videos people rent and then you can give us information about the books people buy and maybe we'll use that to solicit them to buy our products or rent in the case of the video um, the video store can't do that the bookstore can but the video store is barred by federal law from um, sharing information about what what videos people rent. Uh, so that's an example of information privacy where there's a tremendous amount of regulation, but the bookstore is much more free to operate. Now, what, in some areas, um, we have these fair information principles that you mentioned, right. notice, choice, access, and security, and that's another approach to the regulation of information. The basic idea, th these are fair information practices or principles which are widely accepted but not codified into the law very often. They're sort of goals that people think 
privacy, some privacy people think we ought to strive for, but we generally haven't achieved. Um, so notice, for example, refers to the idea that data collectors should disclose their information practices before collecting personal information from consumers. They shouldn't just collect it from you. You should be told what it is they're going to collect and what they're going to use it for. Right. Choice is the idea that consumers should be given options about whether and how personal information collected from them will be used for purposes beyond those for which the information was provided. So if keeping with the bookstore, if you go to a bookstore and you buy a book, um, and the bookstore is going to sell that information to the video store so they can then ask you to rent the movie version the, the, of the book. Um, they should, if, if they were to adhere to the choice idea, they should say, we would like to sell this information to the video store, uh, and uh, is that okay? Right. And, of course, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> the, the third principle is access, the idea that consumers should be able to view and contest the accuracy and completeness of data collected about them uh, so that you could go to the bookstore and say, well, what information do you have about me? And they, you'd see it, and then uh, you'd say, well, gee, I didn't buy this book, or, uh, or, at least, or maybe you'd say th that's correct. And uh, I guess one example of that is under uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, as amended by the FACTA Act, you can now get once a year your credit report for free so you can see what information the credit bureaus have about you. Right. And fourth is security, the idea that data, that is the fourth principle, the idea that data collectors have to take reasonable steps to assure that information collected from consumers is accurate and secure from unauthorized use. You know, Jeff, when you were just talking about the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that, that was the, the one major um, federal law that really does incorporate the fair information practices because we're given notice. We can see who has ac accessed our information, and uh, we're, we, we're not always necessarily given choice about that, but um, we, we are supposed to be giving a permissible purpose, right, for for our information to be, for our credit information to be acquired by a creditor, for example. And well, that, yes, that's right. They you, do, you're supposed to have a permissible purpose, yes, right? Yes, they need a permissible purpose. Right. And um, sometimes it's it's more obvious than others. For example, if you uh, go to an employer and, and he wants to get your credit report, you literally have to sign for it that, yes, I authorize you to get my credit report. Whereas when you apply for a, a credit card, you, there's an implication that since you're applying, you're giving the permissible purpose for them to get your credit report. Right. Right. And then I, access, we do have access. We get to see our credit report. We do. And they are supposed to keep it secure and and accurate and all that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so that's that's probably the best example for us, you know, to see that how it really works. Yes. So you talk about opting in and opting out, um, and l would you explain that a little bit more about opting in and opting out because that that relates quite a bit to information uh, privacy, doesn't it? Yes. Um, when we talk about an opt-in system, we mean that a business can use your, or, I'm sorry, can't use your information unless you give it permission. You have to opt-in to their collection of the information. An opt-out system is the opposite. The business cannot use your information unless, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the business, I've got it backwards. The business can use your information with an opt-out system unless you tell it not to. 
Right. And I guess the clearest example of, or maybe the best known example of an opt out system is the federal uh, Graham Leach Bliley Act, which relates to financial privacy. And that's why so many people have gotten notices from their banks and credit card issuers and so forth, uh, telling them uh, what their privacy rights are and giving them an opportunity to opt out. So when um, what happens with a lot of these uh, privacy notices is people have no idea what they're even saying, unfortunately. <laughs> they don't, don't even know how to deal with it. And um, the, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley allows us to opt out from having our information sold to companies that are not affiliated with the company. For example, if you have an American Express card and they give you an opportunity to opt out, that means that they can't sell your information to a non-affiliated uh, company right. if, if you opt out. But but Gremlich-Bliley doesn't do anything about the fact if, if they have um, affiliated companies that they're partnering with, correct? Right. And apparently it's very important to financial to business to financial industry companies that they be able to share the information with affiliates um, because they want to be able to market what they know to mar- to market products to you from their affiliated companies and of course there are many uh, such affiliated companies in the financial sector what's really scary is i I was uh, just closing on a house recently and they um I saw all the, there were like four pages of affiliated companies with very small type. <laughs> and I had no right to opt out of them sharing all of my information with all of these. Uh, there must have been, I don't know, 75, 80, maybe even more companies that were on there because they were all affiliates. And I had no right to opt out, even though I wrote down in the bottom, I don't want my information sold with all these other companies. I, I don't think that's going to work, is it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, what do you think about that? Well, for me, the maybe the most interesting question is, um, should we have an opt-out system or an opt-in system? But there is a separate issue as, should people be able to trade in your information um, without your permission, uh, even over your objection? And my own opinion is more consistent with the fair information practices, the idea that consumers ought to control their information and that the information should not be able to be transferred without the consumer's permission. So I would go more in the direction of an opt-in system uh, and certainly would not be enthusiastic about a system that said we can do what we want with your information regardless of your personal feelings about it. Right. You know, in California, we passed a law this recently that allows California consumers or that actually causes companies to, we have an opt-in. Let me kind of right. go back. We have opt-in for third-party non-affiliates. So if a company wants to sell my information to some other company that's not affiliated with them or not related to them, they can't do that without getting my prior permission. Right. But if they... Um, but as far as their own um, affiliates, I don't have any right to opt out, even under California law, because we are preempted by federal law. That's right. And a lot of people, you know, don't even understand that. You know, they don't understand why they get so much information um, 
you know, uh, sold about them everywhere, and they get, you know, all this junk mail from other companies, and they really don't understand what all this is coming from. They don't realize where this, you know, information privacy gap is. Well, there's a tremendous amount of information about consumers that's sold every day. People, businesses, and people sell mailing lists. Um, of course, Graham Leach Bliley is limited to financial institutions. Uh, but again, that bookstore, going back to the bookstore example, if they know what books you buy, as they c- can find out because they're selling them to you, um, if they have the record-keeping capacity, they can then sell that information to people. Uh, or your grocery store, especially if you have one of those discount uh, grocery shopping cards that tells them who you are, and they can see that, for example, you're buying dog food, and then they know you have a dog, and they can sell that information to uh, a pet store, for example, or businesses that sell supplies for dogs. Um, And then you might get an advertisement to buy something from that pet store uh, and never know why. You won't necessarily know how that pet store got your name. So there's a lot of... uh, information that's sold without consumers even knowing who collected the information initially, who sold it, uh, and how it got to the person who ultimately sent them uh, the advertisement, the direct mail solicitation. Right. They also don't even know what exactly was sold about them. That's right. You know, I I saw in in your law review article uh, that you had one of the articles that you had written in which you talked about one of your students had um, come back and showed you your driving record. <laughs> that yes. must have been scary, Jeff. That was kind of strange, <laughs> yes. That's now that's changed a little bit. There's uh, some restraint on that, um, but on uh, the sale of driving information. But, yes, he did get my driving record. And uh, What else uh, did he get on you? He told me the name of one of my brothers mm. uh, who held the lien on my apartment. Uh-oh. Um so he uh, he this was and this was in the 90s. Right. Uh even more information is available today. So he was able to uh, get quite a bit of information and he wasn't he, he wasn't somebody who specialized in information, he was just somebody who was handy with a computer. I shudder to think what he could find out about me today. <laughs> Just I wonder what all your students are finding out about you today and me. I I was I recently was deposed um, as an expert witness, and the other attorney had actually done a background check on me and was asking me about a lot of things that uh, were in public records and some things that weren't in public records. It was it was really a, a, a privacy invasion. That's for sure. I think people feel very violated when information such as your brother holding the even though it may be a public record. It's still, um, I bet you felt pretty violated. I was, uh, I, I probably am one of the people who felt less violated. And some people, different people react differently. I was impressed, actually, <laughs> that he'd found that information. I mean, the polls show that some people uh, are very sensitive to privacy intrusions and very unhappy when people can find out information about them. Uh, and others don't care, and still others, and I'm probably in that group, care about it sometimes but not other times, depending on the nature of the information. So since I've been writing about this, I was interested in the fact that he could find out that information. If, if I hadn't been looking into it, I probably would have felt violated. So so what happens um, when... Why is it that 
people have different levels of sensitivity, do you think? I know you had talked about in, in one of your law review articles about that fact that the surveys show different levels of privacy, and uh, Alan Weston did some studies. So wh- what is that all about? Why is it that people uh, are more sensitive than others? It's not just personality, is it? Well, it may be no more than personality or taste. It may also be a matter of experience. If other people had the experience of having somebody come up to them and say, here's your driving record, here's the name of your brother, they might find that frightening. On the other hand, if you get a letter in the mail that says, uh, come visit our pet store, and you don't really think through, well, that means somebody has sold information about me that I have a dog or buy dog food or something, you might not see that as an invasion of privacy, and so it might not be so troubling. And in fact, some people might say to themselves, uh, gee, I, I need to buy some pet products. It's great that this arrived at just this moment because now I know where to do it. And not only that, I, d- I just got a 20% discount. Yes. <laughs> So from some perspectives, I mean, it's not the news is not all bad. If you there one advantage of this from consumers' point of view is that it means that they are getting more targeted solicitations. So that if you are looking to buy pet products, um, all of a sudden you don't have to go. You don't you don't even have to go on the web to find the place or use the phone book. It comes straight to your mailbox. So from that point of view, if you don't mind the sale of the information or don't think about it, it's not such a bad thing. It can even save you time. Exactly. If I, if I, get, uh, if I go on to Amazon and they tell me, Mari, here's some new books that you might be interested in about privacy, then, then that is interesting, and I'll take a look at it. Let, yes. me, let me just reintroduce you because um, we're speaking with Jeff Sovereign, who is a professor of law at St. John's University School of Law. He has written prolifically. He's writing uh, another case book that will be coming out. When is that? In the in the fall? In the spring. In the spring. And he's written many law review articles on consumer issues, consumer privacy, and consumer law. And we're, we're just thrilled to have him on here. So let's, let's ask about one of um, the articles about how businesses inflate transactions costs. Tell us about that and what you think about that. Sure. Let me first explain. Transaction costs are costs people incur when engaging in transactions. They're not costs that the consumer pays to the seller, like the price. They're more things like the time you spend driving to the store or filling out forms, things of that sort. If consumers have a right to something from the business and the businesses don't want to give it to them, one way the business can avoid giving it to them is by inflating the consumer's transaction costs so it becomes hard for the consumer to get the thing. Let me give you an example, rebates. Sellers offer rebates to get consumers to buy products, and then they sometimes make it very hard to get the rebate after the consumer has already bought the product. That way the seller gets to keep the rebate. Oh, yeah, that is so frustrating. I, I probably frustrate them, though, because I go through all those hoops to, to get my $10 rebate. And do you get the money? And Yeah, but sometimes I have to wait months and months, and I, and I have my secretary call. It's, it's very frustrating to me. So, yeah, I can see that that's a, a real good example of it. It's, it's almost like bait and switch. It, it, that's exactly right. And, in fact, we may put something in the casebook comparing it to bait and switch because they bait you to buy at what you think will be the lower price, and then they make it so hard for you to collect the rebate that maybe you don't even bother, and so you give up. You have to send in proofs of purchase. You have right. to 
cut something off the box, you have to mail it in within certain dates, and if you get anything wrong, they'll den- they'll just they just won't pay. They'll deny the rebate. And sometimes as you say you have to make phone calls and a lot of people don't want to do that. So at the end of the day, you end up most consumers end up paying the higher price and that's the switch. It's a deceptive practice. Yes. And this happens throughout the consumer world. That is to say, the inflation of transaction costs. Fine print, incomprehensible terms, making it hard for consumers to assert their rights by using arbitration clauses. All of these are examples of how businesses inflate consumer transaction costs and gain advantages. You know, that's so frustrating. You bring this up right now. You know how they've been, they've had all these um, myriad security breaches. And many of these companies who've experienced uh, experienced uh, the security breaches in which they've had to publicize it have also publicized that they'll give these three months or six months or nine months or a year of credit monitoring. Yeah. But when you get the credit monitoring, and I, I don't know if you're even aware of this, but when you sign up for the credit monitoring through the credit bureaus and you look at the privacy policy, you are submitting to arbitration. So that if there's any dispute that you have with them over any kind of identity theft or any problems, you don't have the right, a private right of action in, in the court of law like you do other under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. You give it up. And most people don't even know that. And and they're put in a between a, a hard place, you know, a rock and a hard place because they are then forced to, if they want this free credit monitoring, they give up something. Yes. And and let me mention this. You you mentioned the Fair Credit Reporting Act. In fact, because banks typically put in their credit card agreements and loan agreements that you're submitting to arbitration, if you have a claim against a bank arising from your credit card, for example, um, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you can't sue them anymore. You're stuck with going to arbitration there, too. Um, And the arbitration clauses typically provide that you can't bring it even as a class action. The difference between bringing it as a class action and bringing it as an individual claim often is the difference between it being worthwhile to bring the claim or not, because if you bring it as a class action, you have a lot of plaintiffs and you can justify a lot more attorney's fees. But if it's just one person, if it's a dispute for a small amount, to spend $10,000 for a $1,000 claim makes no sense. So the effect of this has been to um, make it much harder for consumers generally to assert their rights. And it's also a real threat to privacy in in transactions where there's a written contract, like credit card agreements. It's becoming, it, it may be universal at this point in credit card, I recent, in credit card tra- contracts. I recently heard a lawyer say that it would be legal malpractice not to put an arbitration clause in his client's contracts. Um, and so this is a huge problem for consumers. And people think, people, first of all, people don't read the clauses typically, the arbitration clauses, because they're written in dull, lawyer-like language. And that's another example of inflating consumer transaction costs, because um, the company doesn't want you to read the arbitration clause. It doesn't get anything out of your reading it, and uh, you might back out, although that's unlikely. But you might decide not to get the credit card if you read it. Um, So it doesn't really want you to read it, so it makes it a dull clause, an uninteresting clause that nobody reads. Nobody reads the fine print these days. And 
I'm sorry? I was going to say, or they make it such legalese that you wouldn't understand it anyway. That's right. (laughs) And then also the clauses don't tell you all the consequences, what it means that you'll be in arbitration. And then what they do on top of that is they can write the clauses in such a way as to make it even less likely that you would sue. So, for example, they could put in the clause a loser pays provision so that the person who loses the arbitration has to pay the attorney's fees of the other side. Well, if you're repre- if a consumer comes to you and says, I've got you know a privacy issue uh, in connection with my credit card, they gave information about me to somebody and they shouldn't have, uh, and that's you know, or they violated the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, and you, they, they and there's that arbitration clause with the loser pays provision. Even if you conclude that the consumer's likely to win, if the consumer's looking at the a possibility of losing and might end up having to pay the other side's attorney's fees, which can be substantial, twenty thousand dollars, exactly, you'd, you'd probably want to advise the consumer not to bring the case. So these clauses end up causing consumers not to bring their cases at all. And the result is that important consumer rights across the board, but also in the privacy arena, uh, tend not to get vindicated by private litigation. Now, there's still public sector litigation. Attorneys general uh, can bring cases and federal regulators, and it varies from state to state, but um, they tend not to have the resources to bring as many claims as are out there. So it really has turned, this has turned into a bonanza for uh, businesses that enter into written agreements with their customers. You know, we're seeing arbitration clauses everywhere, aren't we, Jeff? I mean, when you go to the doctor, when you go to the dentist, all, you know, even under HIPAA, everybody is trying to get away from litigation, which is really uh, infringing on consumer rights because we have no redress. Yeah. I mean, what do we do? What, is, what does this all mean to us as consumers? Well, one thing it means to us is that we're going to see fewer cases brought in court, um, which means fewer decisions by courts, which means we'll have more uncertainty about what the law is. Another thing it means is that consumers' rights will sometimes be violated and they won't, there won't be any way to get that addressed. Um, which is a huge problem. Um, Another problem with it is that because the businesses get to pick the arbitration providers, they write into the clauses who the arbitration provider is going to be. They have an incentive to pick arbitration providers that are going to be more sympathetic to businesses and less sympathetic to consumers. And these arbitration uh, companies are profit for profit, and, and they know who's paying the bill. And they know who's going to bring more of the cases toward them. So there is this appearance often of impropriety among these arbitrators. That's been my experience. There was one arbitration provider that announced that it would not enforce no arbitration, uh, no class action clauses, rather, in consumer contracts. In other words, if if, if they were the arbitrator and the contract said no class action, the consumer could still bring it as a class action. And a number of companies responded to that by taking that arbitration provider's name out of their contracts so that they would not allow them to do the arbitrations. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And, And the result was that that arbitration provider reversed its policy and announced that, okay, we will enforce these no class action, um, agreements because otherwise it would have ended up without any arbitrations or at least with many fewer. 
Um, so uh, the arbitration providers understand, I think, uh, who chooses them. And, if, and I think they probably also understand that if they displease businesses frequently enough, businesses will end up choosing different arbitration providers. And it contrasts dramatically with the court system. You can't pick your judge as a rule and you don't get to dis- you don't get to say well this judge tends to come out for my kind of client so I'm going to go with this judge. Right. I mean you can hope and pray and then of course if there's something that you absolutely feel would be prejudicial you can ask for a different judge and and but right. you can have a challenge but you can't do that all the time. No. <laughs> and uh yeah, so there there is it's it's justice for those who can pay. And that's what it's turning into, is that the, the the little guy is getting hurt. So what do we do about this, Jeff? I mean, this is happening more and more, and um, it looks like Congress is supporting this. I mean, even with the Fair Credit Reporting Act that was uh, amended in uh, 2003 with the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, right. they, they uh, actually ruled out a private right of action in many of the provisions and said that the only um, enforcement would be by the Federal Trade Commission or by attorneys generals, and some of those were even taken away. So so what's happening? What can we do about this? Um, well, as consumers, one thing we can do is try to be more aware. Of course, that's easy, more easily said than done. If you get a really uninteresting legalese notice from a company that you do business with, your credit card issuer, for, for example, the tendency is to throw it away. Um, but maybe a better course of action would be to take a look at it and to say to yourself, what is it they've changed that they don't want me to know about and they're therefore putting it in this boring way, increasing my transaction costs. I mean, because if it were something that were a selling point, they wouldn't put it in dull legalese. They'd put in a glossy brochure. They'd want you to notice it. They'd, they'd, do, a, they'd it. do a great marketing job on it, right? <laughs> yes. So it's completely different. So if it's in dull legalese, it might be something you don't care about. But then again, it might be. And if it's something that you, and if you can force yourself to read it and you understand it, and it's significant enough to you, it might make you think twice about continuing to do business with that company. Although, that being said, on issues that consumers tend not to pay attention to, and arbitration clauses are an example of that, um, they the businesses tend to follow the same course. Once one discovers that it works, and it works the same way for for consumers too. I mean, if you hear about something that works for a friend, you'll do it too. It's human nature. Sure. Um, once one business discovers that it works, others will follow it. And in fact, there's an antitrust case pending now arguing that credit card issuers um, all made the move to arbitration clauses and consumers don't have an alternative and that that's an, arbitra- uh, an antitrust violation. But And we'll have to see how that comes out. Oh, who brought that? Uh, uh, some, uh, it's it's uh, a class action, I think. That should be um, interesting. Yeah, I'm not an antitrust person, so I don't know as much about it as, as maybe I should, but I, I know it's pending. But that's a creative way of going about it. Yes. And, and yeah, but I, I think that's the problem, is that consumers feel that maybe you say they don't pay attention to them. I, I think even if they do pay attention to them, they don't have a choice. 
They don't have a choice with doctors. If they decide that they don't want to sign an arbitration clause, the doctor won't see them. That's if right. they decide that they um, don't want the arbitration clause with Bank of America, then they're going to go to another bank that's going to have an arbitration clause. So without any choice, that that's, you know, we don't really have that um, that ability to do something. And then, you know, when I think of co- associations like Consumers Union that does work on behalf of consumers and lobbying, um, I, there's no cohesive group of consumers that, except for like, you know, uh, the... Um, well, I'm a member. AARP. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm a card-curing uh, member of AARP, and and they are. But we don't really have strong groups like that for consumers to help bind us to have any kind of leverage with legislators and uh, and money talks. That's true. I have heard of people, by the way, who um, would cross off arbitration clauses and so forth. And, of course, the people they're dealing with if it's your doctor, your doctor would have the authority to do that. But if you imagine going to into a bank and saying, well, I want to take out this loan, but take out the arbitration clause, the bank's representative does not have the authority to change the contract. Exactly. They're too low a level. Um, but it is, it is a huge problem. Another option for consumers is to you try to use the legislative power that they have. Um, of course, you mentioned... Consumers Union and AARP do lobby on behalf of or or make arguments on behalf of consumers. Consumers can also communicate with their individual legislators um, and uh, representatives in an effort to um, get them to change the rules. And government has occasionally intervened on these issues. I mean, getting back to the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, um, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act does have, even though it's an opt-out statute, um, and it's debatable how well it's worked, it does represent an effort to uh, regulate the sale of information about consumers. I mean, where that statute came from, in the late 90s, uh, there were a couple of cases brought by state attorneys general, uh, one was in Minnesota, um, against banks that were selling customer information, and nobody knew about this. People had, up till then, always kind of assumed that Banks kept financial information confidential, but some banks were selling information about consumers to telemarketers, although many were not. And so Congress, and there was a bit of an outcry, and Congress responded by passing the privacy provisions of Graham-Leach-Bliley and requiring these um, opt-out notices. And they even mandated in the statute that the disclosures be clear and conspicuous, and then the regulations implementing the statute say the notices have to be reasonably understandable, designed to call attention to the nature and significance of the information. They suggest plain language headings, easy to read typefaces, short explanatory sentences, everyday words. And then we get those notices and (laughs) they're unintelligible. So Congress and the the regulators did try to make it better. and, And in that case, it was an attempt, and it, it just hasn't worked. Now, well, there's no, there's no private right of action under Graham-Leach-Bliley. That's right. So you can't sue if they do violate. So my, my experience in looking at some of these laws that where there's no private right of action is, it's like telling your kids, if you come home after 10 o'clock with the car, um, you're going to be in trouble, and then you don't do anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There, there, there's no teeth. There's no enforcement. 
So without any enforcement, I don't think that you're going to get any adherence. Well, that, that is a real problem. There is, there is some enforcement by regulators. Well, there's uh, theoretically enforcement by regulators. Right, right, right. They have the power to regulate. But they don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know if they do or not. I haven't seen any reports of actions taken on, on Gramm-Leach-Bliley violations. In theory, they go in and examine the banks and make sure they're following the rules. But it's hard to believe that some of these notices are clear and conspicuous, or, or certainly not clear. Um, now, one thing that's happening with Gramm-Leach-Bliley is there are some efforts to, um, or there's some thought being given to making the notices clearer. Uh, regulators have uh, been studying this, and there was recently a report where they drafted a notice and they tested it on consumers, and then they just kept testing it until they got one that was relatively easy to understand. And now, uh, I say relatively, I mean, it's, it's never going to be on the bestseller list. Um, <laughs> but, but it, you know, we'll have to see what happens now. I haven't heard of any banks that have said, well, gee, we really want this to be easy because we want consumers to opt out, so we won't sell their inf- we won't be able to sell their information and make money from that. So I haven't heard of ba- any banks that have gone out and adopted these easier forms, um, but there may be some that do. Although we'll see, and if they don't, it'll be interesting to see whether regulators uh, use the information that they have, or Congress um, use the information they have to uh, require clearer notices. We are speaking with Jeff Sovereign, who is a professor of law at St. John's University School of Law. He writes prolifically on consumer issues and privacy protection with regard to this. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the some other things that you've done here. Um, do consumers ever really benefit um, from trading in their personal information? We talked a little bit about that, that sometimes you get a... a, a coupon or something. Is there any other uh, upside to it? And what about the downsides? Well, the downside, I guess, is that there's all this information floating out there about consumers, and we don't know what a lot of it is. And it's being sold to people, and we don't know who they are or who's selling it. And as we talked about earlier, some people are, are very troubled about that. And of course, some of the information is wrong, and some of it is very personal uh, information. So, um, you hear stories of uh, companies offering um, free samples of products for the incontinent, and then people write in to get them or call in to get them, and now they have their mailing list, and then they sell the list of people who are incontinent. And that's information that I think a lot of people would rather not have out there, or at least would rather control. Um, as for the benefits from the trade in personal information, I mean, People do buy things as a result of the solicitations they receive, direct mail and even spam. There are studies that show that 4% of spam recipients uh, bought something advertised through spam in a 12-month period. That was about 4.7 million purchasers. Another study found that 1.2 million households had bought something advertised to them in spam. Um, so That's when pe- scary. That's really scary when you think about all the phishing email yeah. and how many people respond to the, those you know, authentic-looking emails that they jump to another website and give information and credit card numbers and social security numbers. That's, um, that, that's pretty frightening. I mean, that's something that I would think nowadays people just don't do anymore is they wouldn't buy online from a spam email. Well, I guess you would think so, um, but people are still doing it. And I suppose that the point when when people stop buying 
things advertised to them through spam altogether, then spammers will stop sending spam because there won't be any benefit from it. Spam is cheap to send, but it's not free, um, although it's close to free. And so at some point, if, it, if no one buys, then they won't make any money from it and they'll stop sending it. But people do buy, and I guess the people who do buy products advertised to them, and not just spam, but also there are still people who buy things from telemarketers uh, who are not on the do not call list, and there are plenty of people who get direct mail and buy things based on that. If they're buying things, uh, you know, presumably that reflects a, de a decision that they made that they wanted to buy this thing, and so that's a benefit they've received um, from the solicitations. Uh, so there is some benefit from solicitations. And another interesting um, uh, benefit from the sale of information is that private investigators sometimes use the information that is available about people to reunite families. So that's not even really a commercial use, but it is certainly beneficial to those families that are reunited. Right. And, and of course, then there's always the downside that, that people who uh, use that information to stalk or to do something else, you know, in, in a negative way is also out there. So there's the, there's the carrot and the stick and, and the dangers that come with all of this as well. Yeah. So you, you, how, how do the rules for different kinds of solicitation uh, vary? You know, what, what are those rules, the difference between door-to-door -door sales, telemarketing, spam? What are those different rules? How do they vary? Well, um, they vary in a number of different ways. I mean, for door-to-door -door sales, for example, we have um, cooling-off periods for the most part, where if somebody comes to your door and tries to sell you something, it doesn't happen that much anymore. It used to happen a lot, and it still happens in some places. Um, but uh, if someone comes to your door and sells you something, you get three days to change your mind. And the reason for that is that um, the FTC and state legislators thought that door-to-door -door sellers were targeting vulnerable consumers. They might go to poorly educated communities with poorly educated people who weren't able to evaluate, for example, the encyclopedias they were selling. And they'd say, you know, buy this encyclopedia and your kids will have much better opportunities and the parents aren't able to evaluate that. So they buy the encyclopedia they, because they want to help their kids. And then after the salesman's gone, they, the theory is that they'll sort of free of the hard sell, they'll change their minds. So we have cooling off periods for door-to-door -door sales, and some states have that for telephone sales, but plenty don't, and we don't have a federal telemarketing cooling off period, though we have other telemarketing rules that are federal. Um, and we certainly don't have a spam cooling off period rule. Um, so that's one way in which um, the laws are different, cooling off periods for door-to-door -door sales, and some states, some telemarketing sales, but not others. Um, and by the way, I should mention that there's really no empirical evidence that door -to -door, that cooling off periods make any difference at all. Oh, um, that's interesting. There's, there's one study that studied a one-day cooling off period rule in Connecticut and concluded it didn't really make much of a difference. But nobody's ever studied the three-day cooling off period rules. And of course, they're not just limited to door-to-door -door sales. You see them in a lot of places. Uh, gyms and so forth, dance studios, they're common. Um, Timeshares. Time, I'm sorry? Timeshares. That's right. Actually, I, I'm one of those people who, after a cooling off, I bought a timeshare, and then I went back the next day, and I, my cooling off period said, wait a minute, what am I doing here? 
So, so it did help you. It, yeah, it did help me. I did it the very next day. I couldn't sleep the whole night, and I thought, if if my gut is bothering me this much, I'm going to go back and just change my mind. Well, that's interesting because <laughs> it's not clear how many people make that choice, do change their mind once they're out of the presence of the, of the salesperson. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's pretty hard sell on these on these timeshares. Yes. But, of course, I, I did buy one later, and I was happy about it, but I, I bought it for a lot less uh, less money. So <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder, I guess I'm, I'm kind of one of these odd people. I'm concerned more about privacy. But as you said before, it depends on experience. So if, if right. you've been the victim of identity theft or some privacy invasion, you're going to be more sensitive than someone who, who isn't. Of course. So it, that just, you know, it only makes sense. Yeah. So you're working on a consumer law casebook now. What what um, what's what's going to be in there? Well, there are of course a lot of consumer law issues that have nothing to do with privacy, but privacy is definitely going to be is definitely going to have a place in that book. Um, privacy has become much more important uh, in consumer transactions than it once was. I mean, that's for a lot of reasons. It's interesting. The casebook that I'm updating, I'm doing the third edition. The second edition was published in 1991. And I made a list of the some of the words, uh, concepts that you don't see in the second edition that have become very important in consumer transactions since 1991. Words like Internet. Yes. Nobody used the Internet in 1991. And identity theft, that was a phrase that just didn't, nobody had invented it, I think, in 1991. And spam and telemarketing. And Tel- fishing and fishing and yes. farming. And just those were words that were created since that time. It's pretty amazing. And, and all of those raise consumer law issues. Um, and so they have to be addressed in the book. So we're going to have a chapter on privacy, which is going to talk about solicitations like door-to-door sales and telemarketing and spam and online privacy. And we're also going to have uh, – privacy is going to be important to the chapter on credit reporting. And it also comes up a bit in debt collection where there's, there are issues about what debt collectors can say to consumers and can do to consumers um, in collecting debts. So um, so privacy has become much more important in the consumer arena in the last 15 years, which is why I've um, been looking into it. You know, it's just not the consumer arena only, is it? It's it's all citizenry when we're hearing about um, our, our phone records being purchased or being collected by um, pretext calling. Yes. You know what I'm saying, or, or we're, or we're, and then that's sold to governmental agencies, or when our financial information is being collected, and and then um, the NSA has an NSA surveillance on all sorts of uh, our our private information, whether it's our emails or our financial transactions or our voicemail. You know, it's um, and then in the workplace, we're seeing it. So everywhere we're going, we're seeing this issue of what right do we have over our own um, information? Uh, yeah, our own information, and and it's 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 evolved incredibly, hasn't it? From the time when uh, Justice Brandeis said it was the right to be left alone, it's just yeah. it's just really evolved in, into many many different issues. Yeah. Computers have contributed to that, as has the Internet. And, yeah, computers and being able to gather these huge databases. Yes. Um, So from the perspective of consumer law, what do you see as the biggest 
problem looming for privacy protection? What's the biggest one? Well, I, I think probably the biggest overall issue is, is the one we've already talked about, which is uh, the arbitration clauses. Right. And, and one wouldn't really think of that as a privacy issue, except if it is. Uh, in the credit card context, for example. Um, but I think that's going to be a huge issue for, and has already become a huge issue for consumers across the board. And, of course, privacy is now a big part of consumer law, um, which means it's also become a big part of privacy law. Jeff, do you ever see that reversing, that we will be able to gain back what we lost in terms of um, going back from arbitration to having a private right of action in a court of law? Do you see that ever happening? I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of lawyers who are out there fighting these arbitration clauses as hard as they can. There are some public interest group trials lawyers. Trial lawyers for public justice has been very active, um, and they've litigated a lot of cases. Uh, and there are some arguments against arbitration clauses, which they make. Um, one problem is that when they're successful, sometimes the arbitration clauses then get rewritten to take away that argument. Right. Because they find a problem, and uh, then the problem is fixed, and that argument has gone away. The, r the real source of the problem is a federal statute, the Federal Arbitration Act, which preempts a lot of state regulation in the area, and the Supreme Court has interpreted the Federal Arbitration Act, the FAA, as um, being very uh, pro, well, they've interpreted in such a way as to make it very hard not to enforce an arbitration clause. So there are really two ways that can change. One is if the Supreme Court takes a different view, and that seems unlikely at the moment. Um, the arbitration cases uh, have been strongly in favor of arbitration. Uh, there was one recent one where I think the decision was seven to one or something. We're not talking about close cases. Right. <laughs> so that doesn't seem likely to happen there in the near future. Of course, you never know. Um, the other possibility is action in Congress. Uh, and that would take uh, expressions, well, I, I guess... That doesn't seem to work at all right now, not with the makeup of Congress right now. We, we are uh, fighting tooth and nail, and, and we're not getting private right of action on, on any of these consumer issues. No. Now, and, and we're getting, you know, where they're going is federal preemption and no private right of action. Yes. And not even in arbitration. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you, you know, you can't even arbitrate on, on many of these issues. You have to just... You know, leave it up to the uh, federal regulators like the Federal Trade Commission or, the, you know, some other federal agency, which doesn't have the resources, as you were saying before. And they can't take individual cases. They can only take really egregious cases and only the ones that get in the news. So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's I think it's a sad time, really, for consumer protection right now. It's uh, certainly not a good time. So what other projects are you working on in involving privacy? Well, I'm getting together with a number of law professors and lawyers to start a blog on consumer law, and that will address privacy issues as well. Um, we're hoping to launch it around September 1, and we hope it will become a site that people check re regularly to learn about consumer issues, uh, including consumer privacy issues. So that that and the casebook are my big projects right now. Well, those sound like good ones. You know, there's a, a website for um, for a lot of consumer lawyers right now providing information. You might want to uh, collaborate with them, but it's myfaircreditreport uh, myfaircredit.com, 
and they have a lot of information for consumers. It's a bunch of uh, consumer lawyers across the country. So you might want to coordinate with them and uh, see what you can do. You know, uh, you know, David's whack. He was on our show and um, some others like that. So that's that's terrific. Well, Tell us, what what do you think is going to happen in terms of um, where where consumers should be going with opt-in, opt-out? Do you think that there is any hope for us to get more opt-in? Um, well, for the reasons you said about Congress, it doesn't seem likely that we're going to get more opt-in laws through Congress at the moment. Of course, that may change. Um, there are states like California that have been very aggressive in protecting consumers, and they've enacted um, statutes like the California Financial Privacy Statute that uh, provide for opt-in for financial privacy information. And you may see more of that in other states, and you may also see the California approach extended to other areas of life. Uh, beyond financial privacy. Um, so we may see some of that. Uh, you know, different state legislatures have different makeups, and of course that changes over time, so it's hard to predict it. Right. They've, they've kind of followed suit with us with, you know, the security breach laws and uh, with security freeze laws. We've seen that spread from the West Coast to the East Coast, that we've seen some some good uh, changes with regard to consumer privacy at the state level. Yes. And and that's encouraging. Yes, New York just enacted a, a credit freeze, a security freeze statute following your lead. Um, although I gather that there's a possibility, some of the bills pending in Congress, I gather, uh, might preempt state statutes there too. That's exactly right. That's what they're trying to do right now is preemption of our of our security freeze law, which would then only allow victims who are um, victims of identity theft to put a security freeze, whereas in California, if you are a consumer and perhaps have been the victim of a security breach and you haven't become a victim of identity theft yet, you can put a freeze on your credit report, but in many states, you can only put it on if you're a victim. And then the federal legislation pending says you can only put it on if you're a victim. So, yeah. so we're talking about federal preemption there. And the same thing with the security breach. We have the security breach legislation pending that that also is going to water down the California laws. So so we need your help there on the East Coast to go down to Washington and, and put in a good word for some good consumer protection. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, it, there's an interesting thing about the California um, data protection statute, the security breach. Until that happened, until that statute was passed, we never knew about all the... Um, breaches of security. And they and, were happening. Yes, <laughs> and, and they're still happening. Exactly. And we still don't know about all of them, probably, because not every state has passed such a statute. But one of the things that's interesting is you would always hear reports in the media about the way to protect yourself against identity theft is to keep close control of your personal information, don't write your social security number down, and so forth. And of course, that's true. But that advice does no good against an identity thief who gets the information from a company that's been careless with its data. And then once that statute was enacted and all of those breaches were announced and continue to be announced, unfortunately, we um, now know that the identity thieves, many of them do get information because in, 
consumers are careless, but plenty of them get information from other sources, too. Exactly. Well, Lloyd is giving me the high sign, so we will have to have you come back after you finish updating your casebook and you get your whole new project under control with all of the professors and and lawyers to talk about other privacy issues. So thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York. We really appreciate it. Jeff Sovereign, a professor from... uh, St. John's University School of Law in New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Uh, Listen every week from 5 to 6 to Privacy Piracy. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you for listening. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 